Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Monday, the 21st of September. In today's podcast, I will be looking at the second wave of COVID-19 in Europe with Professor Rainer McIntyre. The latest global and local COVID-19 statistics will follow the interview. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for tomorrow's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. In today's podcast, I will be speaking with Professor Rainer McIntyre, Professor McIntyre, please tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Rhina McIntyre. I'm a, research, a researcher at the Kirby Institute, the University of New South Wales, in the biosecurity program. And uh, my research is on infectious diseases. Now, today I'd like to focus on the second wave in Europe. How bad is it really? And how did it happen? So essentially, you know, we don't have a vaccine yet. So when we have an epidemic, we apply restrictions, basically reduce mobility, social distancing, face masks, um, you know, expanded testing, uh, contact tracing, etc. And then the cases decline, like we're seeing in Victoria right now. And um, we have a period of relative normality with low numbers of cases. And so we saw the early wave in Europe in March and April, and then... Um, they went through all those things, you know, lockdowns and mm-hmm. face masks and um, severe restrictions. Cases went down and then they resumed. But the nature of epidemic diseases are such that as soon as you start taking the foot off the brakes, the diseases will start to increase again. And in that first wave, it was still a very small percentage of the population that got infected. So the majority of people were still susceptible to the virus. Mm-hmm. So and it's the same in Australia. The majority of people are susceptible to the virus. They're, therefore, um, any country really that um, has had a first wave could have a second wave as well. And, in, you know, some of the modelling studies suggest that that's exactly what we'll see until we have a vaccine is we'll have epidemic periods and inter-epidemic periods. And in those inter-epidemic periods, we can continue life in a more normal way, but then um, as cases increase, we'll have to start applying those restrictions again to get it under control. Compounding this, I wonder whether the fatigue and the resistance that we see has made things worse. Yes, I think people, uh, you know, no one's really in the right headspace, you know, to get to grips with what's going on and the fact that, you know, this is a pandemic and, until we can vaccinate people, we're all going to be susceptible and people have lived through that first wave and all the restrictions that went with it. So fatigue is definitely um, a factor. And so perhaps people 
have sort of felt, oh, it's over now, we can get back to normal and kind of relaxed a bit too much. But uh, unfortunately, until everyone is, most people are immune, um, it's going to keep cycling like this. At the same time, Raina, you can look at the discussions coming from, if you like, the heads of government, which is now pretty much focused on the economy rather than, if you like, increasing lockdowns and restrictions. Yeah, so I think people um, want to uh, try to ride it out with as much normality as possible, but in the end, the health system capacity is going to be the litmus test of any society when your hospital beds start running out, when you don't have enough ICU beds, when you don't really can't ventilate everyone who needs ventilation um, and, you know, your healthcare workers are also falling over. Um, getting infected that is the point at which you know then you see the forced lockdowns and that's exactly what happened in New York and also in um, Spain Italy etc all through Europe uh, earlier in the year and I think that's happening right now in Marseille in France isn't it yeah yeah Hmm. so which countries are the ones who are bracing for a second lockdown and the ones who are doing everything in their power to avoid one Well, I haven't heard that anyone's um, openly stated they're going into lockdown yet, but I I think that, again, the health system is the litmus test. When when the health system starts falling over, that's generally when all these measures come in as a reactive response. Wow. So what you're really saying is that there's no way this second wave can be brought under control until they've completely filled the hospital beds and then they might well bring in a lockdown. Well, no, I'm not saying that exactly. I'm not saying there's no, there are ways to bring it under control, but really it's, Mm -hmm. you know, without locking down and that is mandating mask use, which many European countries have anyway um, in public spaces, Um, mandating mask use, um, the physical distancing, um, reducing certain mass gatherings, you know, bans on restaurants, pubs, they tend to be venues where there are super spreading events and outbreaks. Um, and there was actually a study recently that showed that a lot of the super spreading events were linked to um, entertainment venues, you know, restaurants, clubs, pubs, etc. But the point is that people have to be prepared to still change their lives to some extent in order to keep the disease under control. And that's the problem. You know, we see that, you know, as soon as cases get down to low levels, people think, oh, great, it's finished. We can now get on with life. You know, even in a city like Sydney, you don't see, you do see some mask wearing, but you don't see much social distancing. You know, people are not really keeping their distance from each other. And there's there's still a lot of, um, are taking for granted of the measures that we have to all um, partake in to keep the disease under control. I was walking down the road full of people, walked into a grocery shop, and, of course, people lining up behind me was right behind me. I turned around. I said, excuse me, do you mind stepping back? And all I got was a severe yelling at. It's quite amazing. You obviously don't have the the kind of cold, hard stare that I have because... (laughs) I do call people out if I'm out and about and, you know, I've got people standing right up close to me. I mm-hmm. will just turn to them and say, excuse me, you know, you're not even bothering to wear a mask. Can you please keep your distance from me? 
and I haven't had anyone yell at me yet. It must be the way I say it. <laughs> it must be the way you say it. I must look like a target. <laughs> now, I must look scary. <laughs> <laughs> Rona, what does that mean for the whole of Europe now that they're into a second wave, especially to the economies and to the international borders? Well, you know, I mean, internationally, it means that travel and tourism is going to remain um, severely impacted. I don't see it being feasible to um, sort of resume those industries anytime soon. Mm -hmm. uh, the European Union is borderless anyway, so um, that they have a special problem in the European Union, um, which will make epidemic control more difficult. And of course, they're coming into their winter, which is the other concern, um, because people congregate more in closed indoor spaces, etc. in winter, and the virus itself does better in the cold weather. So that's, that's another big concern. I think you've mentioned it, but what are the lessons we have learned from the, Europe, the second wave in Europe? Well, that this, this disease isn't going away anytime soon. You know, it is an epidemic disease. It's a pandemic and the nature of the disease is epidemic. So that if you have a, a degree of community transmission, it's just going to keep growing until you do something about it. And it's going to grow in an exponential fashion. It's not going to be constant. Um, it's not like you can say, okay, I'll live with, you know, 20 cases a day, that, that's fine. It doesn't stay at 20 cases a day. 20 cases becomes 40, becomes 80, and it just keeps growing exponentially. So... You know, until we have a vaccine, we have to learn to live with this virus and find that balance between being able to conduct, you know, normal activities and keeping the disease under control. And, I, you know, I think some of those things really have to be mandated. And there's a lot, there's a bit of research already showing that when you just recommend mask use, people don't mm -hmm. use it, the, the high enough proportion don't use it that you do have to mandate it to get the uptake right up. So I think, you know, one of the sensible things is to look at mandating some of these things. We already have fines and disincentives for people who break the um, social gatherings rules, you know, um, people who have parties with more than the allowed number of people, depending on where you are, they get fined. And, you know, um, every individual at the, at the gathering will get fined. So, Using those kind of disincentives, um, I think, is, is, is another way to go. The Victorian example is very good, isn't it? Overnight, the use of masks just became the norm. Yeah, yeah. And that's what any Victorian will tell you, that, you know, all it took was leadership and a mandate and everyone just did it, you know. And in the absence of that, you'll still, you'll, you'll only get maybe 30 to 50% wearing a mask and that may not be enough. Changing the topic, what are your greatest concerns for the refugees on this bus? Um, for the refugees? Yes. Well, um, so refugees, I guess, whether, where, depending on where they are, if they're living in community housing or in... I know, uh, this is in Lesbos where they had this big fire through the camp. It's a real concern because you've got people living in very close quarters and crowding and it's very difficult to control epidemics in those kind of living conditions. It's a bit like um, there's been some well-documented outbreaks in urban slums, you know, like in India and Indonesia, and it's just not possible to control it when it gets into high-density living in that way where people are just packed up like sardines in very close conditions. And in refugee camps, the, um, often the design of 
the camps also act acts as a um, facilitator of outbreaks because people have to come to a central spot for food mm. or for water and then go back to where they came from. Um, so there's, there's kind of design issues that can reduce that risk where you reduce the risk of people unnecessarily congregating or coming to the one spot. So before I go, Raina, just a question. What do you think could happen in Europe in terms of numbers of people being infected? And which countries do you think is going to suffer more than others? I think all, all of Europe is at risk. Perhaps the countries that had a really bad first wave will be better and may step up the response sooner because they know what they lived through. And maybe the countries that didn't have such a bad first wave will be more susceptible. It's hard to say, you know, could go any way. But like in the UK, for example, their hospital, uh, I think there was a doubling time of eight days for the hospital admissions with COVID-19, which is you know, about an incubation period. So that's, that's not good at all. And you have to factor in some of the political changes that are going on as well in different countries and how that will impact on things. So the countries which are going through tumultuous change, like the UK and Brexit, that may make it all that much harder. Raina, look, I really do thank you again for your precious time. It's a pleasure, David. You have a great day and keep safe. Thanks, and you too, and to all the uh, listeners. From the John Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Centre, we find that the global COVID-19 cases is now nearly 31 million. The USA has recorded nearly 6.8 million cases, India more than 5.4 million, Brazil has exceeded 4.5 million, Russia has nearly 1.1 million, Peru nearly 763,000, and Colombia with more than 762,000 cases. Global COVID-19 deaths is fast approaching 960,000. The USA will likely pass another grim milestone of more than 200,000 deaths sometime today. Brazil recorded nearly 137,000 deaths, India nearly 86,700, and Mexico with more than 73,200 deaths. To date in Australia, 26,721 cases of COVID-19 has been recorded and 851 deaths. In the past day, Victoria continues to crush the numbers with 11 new cases recorded and two deaths. New South Wales recorded four new cases. Three are returned travellers in hotel quarantine and one is linked to the Concord Hospital cluster. But we can be sure that much work has been generated for our public health trace and track team caused by the infected taxi driver. Queensland has one new case, a returned traveller in hotel quarantine. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for tomorrow's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points 
and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.